Welcome back to your province, your premier. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. Saturday mornings at this time, I'll be speaking with Premier Danielle Smith about a few of the issues of the day, but it's really your opportunity to chat for the premier directly. Ask your questions, voice your concerns, whatever's on your mind. Uh, please keep it short and respectful. All right, Premier Danielle Smith is ready and waiting to take your calls or texts. The numbers, as I'm sure you know by now, 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. Premier Smith, welcome to the show. Hello again, Wayne. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. And uh, I've got a few questions I, I want to try to get to on today's show. Health, oil patch, funding related. And of course, our listeners on the phones and text lines will have their own questions. So I want to start off at less than two weeks ago, after signing that 10-year, $24 billion health care funding plan with the Trudeau government, comes word that the feds will be clawing back payments to about $14 million to Alberta because of out-of-pocket payments made by patients for private services. Alberta just one of eight provinces the feds have targeted. That's not the first time they've done this. So what will your government be doing in response? Can Ottawa's position be challenged? And we have challenged them. I, we should probably put the timeline into perspective because they did tell us this in December. And I was glad that we were able to not have that derail any of our discussions around new health funding because that's going to proceed. And remember, they're bringing 100, 518 million new dollars on, on some targeted areas and also some overall support for our Canada health transfer. So that that's continuing um, in our discussions. I would say on, on this issue, we just have a difference of opinion. Anytime a medically necessary Necessary CT scan or MRI is prescribed by a doctor because they think there's something wrong. Those are 100% covered. No one ever has to worry that if uh, their doctor says you need this, that they're that that anyone would have to pay out of pocket. Well, but there are some people who like to have sort of a second opinion or like to go on an annual basis to just make sure that for their own peace of mind that they're able to, to access these services. And in a certain number of those, they, they might find something is wrong, like stage four cancer, at which point they get into the queue along with everyone else so that they can be treated. So I, I think that we just have a difference of opinion about whether or not people should be allowed to pay their own money out of pocket to get a second opinion and that level of assurance. And we're going to continue to, to press on them that we are not out of compliance with their policy. Medically necessary and prescribed MRIs and CT scans are fully covered. And we will get a legal opinion. We've, I've asked the, the the health minister to get a legal opinion in support of our position. All right. We are still waiting for full delivery of $80 million of children's medication, but it appears that enough from regular sources has now shown up on most pharmacy shelves. So we're pretty much committed to paying for supply that we don't now need. Could that money have been better spent in the health system? You know, I go back to where we were in, uh, in when I first got elected in October with the opposition saying that the system was on the brink of collapse and that parents couldn't get medication. They were crushing it up at adult medicine, crushing it up and putting it into yogurt so their kids would, would eat it. Or even if someone was away going to Mexico or or, uh, or the U.S., bringing some back and then parent groups were, were trying to share it to get to get some kind of access to these medications. When, when you have a parent, when you have a parent who has a young child 
who has a fever that won't break. And they're worried about febrile seizures and they're taking their kids into the hospitals and, and worried as well that they're not going to be treated there. That was what was on my mind. And I can tell you that we did get the initial uh, allotment for our hospitals uh, several weeks ago. So that gave me some peace of mind that at least if we continue to have shortages, that uh, parents would be able to go to, to hospital and be able to get the treatment that they need. And we will have uh, additional amounts on the on the shelves. Th this isn't a problem that's solved yet. I mean, I, I really wish that the si supply chain issues globally were over, but they're not. So we still have the potential, as we all know, at this time of year for another surge in virus. We know that it, uh, other provinces are continuing to have surge and shortage problems. We have been uh, in contact with some American states that are having problems with supply. So we will recover um, much of this cost. I just I just think people expected me to act. I did act. We. Uh, had a little more complication dealing with Health Canada than I expected. So we live and learn. I, it'll help us for next time that we need to source something. But I, uh, I, feel, I feel pretty confident that, we, that we've given the parents the assurance that they need. All right. I'm going to try to sprinkle my questions throughout the conversation this morning, but let's go right to the phones and we'll go to Chris in Edmonton. Good morning, Chris. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Oh, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Madam Premier, a number of months ago, our Prime Minister Trudeau met with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And at that time, Trudeau said that there was no business case for LNG. And so I'm wanting to ask you, when you met with the Prime Minister, did you press him on this? Did you ask him about what he meant by there was no business case for LNG? And what was his answer, if any? I can tell you it's one of the top issues that I have raised with the the prime minister uh, the and with and with his office staff we've, we have ongoing discussions about LNG because I can tell you I look at LNG export as being a way to, to solve some of the the federal government's aspirations on reducing greenhouse gas emissions globally if we can if we can get some of these projects up and 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 producing and exporting on the coast and for every every one BCF a day that we're exporting that reduces emissions by 15 megatons they're, they're planning on on having as much as a six BCF uh, on the coast, if we can get all of those projects that are that are in the queue up and running, which will have a, a huge impact on emissions. So that's the argument that I make to him, is that if this is a global problem, then let's look at a global solution. Let's use our clean LNG for export and reduce the uh, incidence of higher polluting coal or, or wood or other fuels in China and India and elsewhere. So that's one of the issues that we're, that we're pushing forward. Same with um, uh, David Eby, the new premier of British Columbia. And I can tell you, that making that same argument helps to assist in getting him to the finish line on on, on supporting more of these projects. I, I think British Columbia sees the advantage globally of us reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and that's going to be the uh, that's going to be the, the 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 push for us. I I would say that we have some willing partners in Western Canada. Those are the ones that we're going to want to work with, and it is almost a daily conversation that we have with the premier's with the prime minister's office about how we can uh, we can get to the finish line on some of these projects. I'm I'm hoping that we're we're going to be able to, to bridge that divide, but I can tell you we're making it fr frequently. All right. Jill from Rocky Mountain House has texted and said, I saw something disturbing, an ad on YouTube by the NDP stating that Premier Smith is, quote, siding with Russia. This seems to be like miss or disinformation. Can you offer some insight? Yeah, I think before the 
Before the invasion of Ukraine, I think there were a lot of conversations going on about is there some way for it to be avoided? And so I, I asked my uh, the people who, was, who were following me at the time about just some suggestions. Is there some way that, that this can be avoided? And I think that that got misconstrued once the invasion happened. Um, and I think once the invasion happened, we have been standing shoulder to shoulder with uh, with Ukraine on pushing, um, uh, on making sure that when uh, with the, the settlement and the and the distress that is being caused to their population, that we are there to help. We've had over twenty thousand Ukrainians that have come to Canada, and we have offered uh, language support. We're offering rental support. We're helping with bursaries to get them into um, into different school programs, settlement services. Many are going to stay, and we. We stand, we stand by uh, wanting to, to help more once the conflict is over with reconstruction. The, the sad part is that at this point, we're still dealing with uh, with refugees. I don't think anybody anticipated it would go on this long or be this devastating. And so that is, uh, I think that people should feel some comfort that we've put forward 27 million prior to me getting elected and an additional 27 million on those settlement services. And we're going to continue doing that. All right. We're going to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith. More of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier. If you're just joining us today, you are listening to Your Province, Your Premier, heard every Saturday morning for listeners throughout Alberta. In Edmonton on 630, Chad, right here in Calgary on QR. Calgary, your opportunity to be heard by Premier Danielle Smith. We are going to go to the phones right off the top here. Uh, top of this segment, and uh, Justin is calling in from Edmonton. Go ahead, Justin. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Good morning, Premier Smith. Hi, Justin. It was nice to see you last week. Yes, it was nice to see you too. And my question is, what is your vision for this province for the next four years? Why, what is your case for the people to re-elect you? Well, one of the biggest differences I think that that people will see with us and the other party is the approach that we take on mental health and addiction. It, it is it is the the top priority for uh, our government. In fact, I talk about it with my chief of staff, Marshall Smith, about it every single day. And I think what we're what we're trying to demonstrate is that caring conservatism means something. It, it's not all just about dollars and cents. When when people give us their tax dollars, they want to make sure that we're delivering programs in a way that's going to work for them. So the approach we're taking on mental health and addiction is that we're building recovery communities so that we can get people into the treatment that they need, whether it's for a, a month or six months or a year, give them training, give them support, give them therapy so that when they get out on the other end, they can go back to their lives, go back to their families and communities and be able to put the addiction behind them. But on top of that, we're also not going to allow for public disorder on the streets. It's part of the reason why we gave a, a, a major increase to Mike Ellis's department, 13% year over year. He's hiring 235 new new sheriffs, and part of the, what their job will be to be embedded in Calgary and Edmonton on this pilot project, so that we can address the issues of social disorder. We we can't allow open air drug use on the streets. We can't allow the kind of uh, of violence and concern that people have when they walk out on the streets at night. So that's one part. But he also announced this week that he's uh, setting up units to go after those who are, are smuggling guns across the border, those who are using them in gang and organized crime. And we, we're going to take a, a very tough approach on that, too. So we've got to make sure that we continue on that. I think that we let this issue get away from us in, in the last few years. I think it got very bad during COVID. And we've got to make sure that we've got public safety back. But most importantly, as well, that we just don't give up on people, that we got, we've got to get people their lives back if they're in the throes of addiction. That's one of the major things. But I 
I could say that that's the kind of approach that we're taking on a whole range of issues um, on healthcare, on education. I could I could probably talk at length, but Wayne won't let me. No, so I, I won't. But, but <laughs> on that note, on that note, uh, I have a text in from the uh, Ched line. Uh, this is Robert uh, texting in from Edmonton. What training standard and where are new municipal police forces going to be trained? He says for Alberta, Everybody should be trained to a common standard. He says Edmonton police, Calgary police, RCMP at all times do not work well with each other. Just ask the Crown prosecutors. You know, I'll take that back to Minister Ellis because part of the reason I created this Ministry of Public Safety and Emergency Services is so that we could get that dedicated approach of how do we integrate and get everyone working together. I observed the exact same thing that uh, that he, that uh, your, your texture did, that we have um, RCMP and our sheriffs and our municipal police forces, we're not always integrating and working well together. It's part of the reason why we felt like with our with our sheriffs, let's try out a, a system of, of being able to embed them with different departments so that we could connect people to the services that they need that are offered by the province. We're, we're just going to try that out and see how it works. But I, I believe that our sheriffs have the ability to go cross-jurisdictional and to be able to work in partnership with any force that finds themselves needing that extra hand. So I, I think I read you. somewhere uh, Premier Smith, that I think there's only a week's difference in training between the sheriffs and uh, and CPS. Is that right? Uh, that's what I that's what um, I understand from uh, from from Mike Ellis. And remember, he's a Calgary Police Service officer. Uh, for, that was his history before he got into elected life. And uh, and so he 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 said he was surprised to find out that it was essentially a week's worth of training that our sheriffs needed to bring them up to the same level. I don't know what the differential in training would be with our RCMP officers, but I do know that that's one of the factors that Mike is looking at because we do want to be able to have that seamless integration. All right. Jonathan is calling in from Calgary with a retirement age question. Go ahead, Jonathan. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I'm just curious. Um, there's a vast difference between the age of office workers and construction personnel. Uh, I've been in the trades now for 40 years. Just wondering if there's any way that retirement age for, for people can get re-looked at. 65 seems a lot. I've got a lot of friends that have worked in construction for a long time and they don't seem to last past 67 just wondering if we could get it lowered or how do we go about doing that versus where 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 did you say that that you noticed the discrepancy well uh, between construction workers and office people uh, you know we work labor for 40 plus years versus an office person sitting around and doing paperwork not saying that that's not hard work they just have a longer lifespan according to your statistics um, it seems like the average person seems to retire around 64 and that's on your website. Just wondering if we could get it lowered back down. Like, why did we go from 55 to 65? Well, I, I guess I'd have to look at, at that a little bit more closely because oftentimes these um, employment arrangements are negotiated in union contracts. And so it would seem to me that that's kind of an employer and uh, union leader negotiation that would take place. In fact, I'm I'm finding almost the opposite. I'm finding that there are more people wanting to work longer rather than act as if 65 is the is the date in which you you no longer continue working i i know people who work well into their into their 70s i've just actually met even a few people who are working into their 80s so i wouldn't want to to prejudge what um what what the outcome here would be it it is true that when you have a more intense physical job it is a lot harder to be able to to sustain that. So let me let me take it away. And um, again, again I, I tend to think that these kinds of retirement ages, I get more people lobbying me 
to remove provisions that would force them to retire earlier than they want and have some kind of mandatory retirement than, than the opposite. So um, maybe I'll just have to take that away and talk with Brian Jean to see if there's anything that I'm missing on that issue. All right. Brian is phoning in from Calgary with a car insurance question. Go ahead, Brian. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Uh, good morning, Premier Daniel Smith. Uh, would you please consider bringing in government-run, no-fault vehicle insurance to combat high vehicle insurance rates in Alberta? And that is all I have to ask. Thank you. Brian, I share your frustration. I, I remember when it wasn't even that long ago, knowing people who would come to Alberta saying, oh my goodness, my rates here are so much lower than where I came from. And no one says that anymore. Now, and I think the Ernst & Young report confirmed it. It doesn't matter how old you are, what kind of car you drive, that uh, Albertans are paying more than in other provinces. That's a problem. It's, it's the reason why we announced that we are going to have a freeze on further increases. We announced that in January. Unfortunately, there are a couple of, of uh, increases that were affirmed in, in November, which you probably saw in the in the paper this week, I think 16% in, in one case. And that's exactly the reason why we said <clears throat> no more rate increases until we can figure that out. Because uh, anyone looking at that, knowing what inflation is saying, is going to say that's ridiculous. So we have to understand why it is that we ha we're having these problems. And I'm I'm open-minded about the what the solutions might, might be. I think one problem that we have is the cost of repair of vehicles. I'm um, standard fender benders in the past used to be very cost-effective to replace. Now they put all the cameras in the bumpers, and so these are now ten and fifteen thousand dollar repairs on the most common type of accident. The other thing we need to look at is whether our rates are factoring in some kind of climate change risk. I know that the insurance companies have been talking about that for a few years. And true enough, we've been hit with some big, big settlements because of uh, the Southern Alberta floods and the Fort McMurray and slave-like fires and hailstorms. But we, we always know that when those big events happen, the federal government steps in and assists in, in covering some of the costs. So it could be that our rates are a little bit out of whack in how they're assessing what their future liability might be. Those are the kind of things that I'm looking at. Uh, if you've got some advice about other things we should be looking into, this is why we're taking a full year to understand this. And we're going to solve it. Those rates have to come down. All right. Uh, text line uh, on the Ched line. Hello, Premier Smith. I hear a lot about our frontline staff shortage of the medical system, and I'm wondering if we are hiring back those who were let go uh, due to them not being vaccinated. Can we hire those people back? And if not, how come? This one is from Henrik in Beaver County. We were one of the first provinces to to end the uh, the mandate on medical workers. I was pleased to see that. I think just in British Columbia, they announced finally this week in BC that they're lifting that same mandate. So that hasn't been one of the barriers. I think one of the barriers is that um, we've we've burnt out our frontline workers, um, uh, doctors, nurses, paramedics, and and that is the big problem that we're facing is one of retention. That we want to create a a, biz, a work environment where people are excited to come to work, where it feels like they're valued, that they're practicing in their full scope of practice and that's what we've been working so hard on since um i first got elected we uh we were we were facing a system that i kept getting told was on the brink of collapse i said we, we've got to stabilize this nobody wants to work in a system where they're being where they're 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 nervous and anxious every day they go to work they we, they, they want to be able to do good patient care so one of the most important things that we've done i think to address this is that we're hiring 114 full-time equivalent nurses who are going to be the uh, onboarding 
uh, as personnel when 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 uh, paramedics drop a patient off at hospital, and that is going to change. You, you wouldn't believe how much that's going to change things. Having those dedicated staff staff so that our paramedics are able to turn around and then get back out on the field, so that we're always making sure that we have somebody available if there's an an urgent call, is going to to change so much for the I think the the work environment for our paramedics, and then having these dedicated nurses acting as that that transition so that people can get immediate care, immediate uh, triage, and then know uh, what, what the pathway is for their treatment, whether it's treat and release or whether it's treat and, and uh, admit into hospital. It's going to, I think it's going to, to make it much more, um, I think that nurses in particular, but all frontline staff are going to feel like there's some stability in the system, that they're valued, that they're doing the work that they were trained to do. And that's what I'm hoping will, will help in, in attracting more people back into the system. We had to stay at first, and we're well on our way. Okay, Lynn is phoning in from St. Albert. Go ahead, Lynn. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. And if I could get you to turn your radio down, Lynn, getting a little bit of feedback. Thank you. Lynn, go uh, ahead. Yeah, thank you, uh, Premier Danielle Smith, and um, and you, Wayne, for putting this. This is quite an opportunity. Uh, and I want to talk to you about a little bit about the environment, food security, and regenerative farming. Um, and uh, I'm going to bring you back. I need to talk a little bit of the history, uh, where I'm coming from. But um, in try, the try, try to keep it as short as possible, Wayne. Was diversification. And uh, diversifying our agriculture is what I was interested in because that's where my heart was. And uh, they had picked, uh, the government at the time says, we're going to use um, all elk, deer farming, bison farming, and whatever to diversify the agriculture. And uh, so I poured my heart and soul in there, like many others, though we were growing actually exponentially. It was unbelievable. It was so much fun, and it was a beautiful industry, but it did not last. We, we, we uh, faltered under a truckload of bureaucracy. But um, so then what happened is I moved my, my, uh, my jobs. We, were, we had 11 employees on our ranch, on our farm. Uh, we moved that to uh, Minnesota. In the U.S., they were getting going, too. And I seen today, I can show you that we, a billion-dollar industry slipped through our fingers in Alberta here, and it moved south. Um, and it's been, it's been fun, but it's also been very difficult. I've been self-employed for 50 years, and I know what it's all about, but uh, it should have been easier than that. And I wish this is so good for, for agritourism, saving our rural communities, biodiversity, biosecurity, food security, all kinds of good things like that. We need to get it going again in Alberta. All right, Len, I'm, gonna, I'm we, going to have to cut you enough. off. We know, we know what we have to do. Uh, I would like to know if you would be prepared, uh, Premier Daniel, if you would be prepared to maybe sit down with some of us that experience that, some like old timers like us. Um, I know you're probably too young for remembering some of this stuff, but... Um, uh, yeah. This is a nice industry that we could get going, and it's it's a healthy one. Len, appreciate the call. I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to cut you off there. You went a little long, but uh, I'm sure Premier Danielle Smith will have a great answer. 
Well, I have a dear friend who is in, in bison farming and he's just handing off to the next generation and helping to cultivate them in that in that business. And I have met some elk farmers as well. I think I uh, in the, the I think there were some elk farms in the in the Lloydminster area last time I, I was in public life. I, I didn't realize that there was any particular red tape that was that was strangling the industry. But I know that uh, Nate Horner, our agriculture and irrigation minister, probably does know that. So what I would suggest to you, Len, is, is get a, a group together and, and make a uh, a meeting with with my ag minister. This, the the style of leadership I have is I, I like for to empower my ministers, and then if they have any problem in in getting something through, then they call me to lend a hand. I, I tend not to to be the first point point of entry. So if you've got some suggestions about how to how to address some of those regulatory barriers, uh, meet with Nate Horner, and uh, we'll see if we can if we can address some of them. All right. Now here's one of the questions I wanted to try to get in, and I'm putting it in because we have a text uh, to this topic as well. Now on last week's show. I mentioned the disappointment from Calgary that it didn't receive any money for downtown revitalization. And from the reports I've heard this past week, it sounds like it was a result of a communication issue. A funding request somehow didn't get into the right hands. So is it too late for that to be rectified? Is there a way that Calgary still gets some money? And our texter is saying, uh, please clear the air regarding the budget to Calgary. For her to say the UCP never received a priority list and the mayor to provide one sent last November is not a good look for an election hinged on the city of Calgary. That was from Douglas. Well, you know, it wasn't it wasn't brought to my attention, but it was sent on to the the minister Travis, uh, the finance minister Travis Taves. And there's many things that were in the recommendations for priorities that we did end up addressing. For instance, LRT, as an example, we've got 541 million that we're putting towards LRT projects, including uh, some additional funding and commitment to build out the last line to the uh, to the airport, the blue line. If we can just get that last piece uh, put together, I think that's going to make a, an extraordinary difference. We're also funding the Glenbow Museum, $60 million. That's going to be downtown. I think that the, the sticking point is that the the uh, the city wants us to give a hundred million dollars into a fund so that they can give the money to a part to to building owners so that they can renovate and retrofit their buildings. Now, if that's uh, um, uh, Calgary's priority, then you know, power to them. They can they can go that route. We we tend to prefer to uh, partner on projects that are are specific, like Limbo Museum. Uh, they have come back to us and said, "Well, is there something we can do to assist in helping to move?" post-secondaries downtown. And we're very open about that. The issue has been that we haven't had any post-secondaries approach us. As far as I know, I've, ta- I've talked to the advanced education minister. Maybe that's changed in the time we spoke with us saying that they wanted to move downtown. But you know what? Let's put out the call. If there's somebody who wants to establish a downtown campus and they need some assistance in retrofitting buildings to be able to do that, then, let, then let's do it. I've just received mixed um, advice on whether having the, these buildings retrofitted for residential is the best use, or if we should be doing what we're doing, which is creating a business environment that will attract more business traffic downtown so that those get filled with head office towers. That is, and so I think we have to have a collaboration with the city of Calgary, absolutely. But we also have a job to do as a province, and our job is to provide services to people. That's why we want to solve the mental health and, addi- and homeless and addiction crisis. It's why we want to help them with policing. It's why we want to make sure that we're building out some of the major infrastructure projects, like finishing up the Ring Road and uh, f- and uh, upgrading Deerfoot, which is a, a commitment of $461 million. We also have to build schools. We've got 11 schools that we're going to be in different uh, stages of design and scoping out. We um, also have a, a cancer facility 
facility that we have to staff up. So um, we have responsibilities at the provincial level that are big ticket items that help Calgary and area. And we are, we are more than happy to, to partner with the, the city on specific projects that they think might help them downtown. But it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't normally be something that we would just hand over a hundred million dollars and say, off you go, let us know, let us know how it works out. We, right. we, yeah. we tend, we tend to like to figure out specific projects that we can fund. And so exactly. if there's some specific ones, they should bring them back to us. All right. Uh, Mark has been uh, holding on for quite a while, calling in from Calgary, uh, Keystone XL and Ukraine question. Go ahead, yeah. Mark. Yeah, Premier Ness taking my call. Justin Trudeau and Christina Freeland are certainly telegraphing to Canadians. It's almost like a private support war with Trudeau. They uh, are throwing, they are committing almost like a blank check mentality to Ukraine. And just some quick facts, not a NATO country. Putin's threatening to use nukes. Uh, Ukraine, historically part of Russia, the birthplace of Russia for that matter. Um, and uh, I'm just curious, your thoughts on this. Um, I mean, Trudeau uh, just gave them three million dollars again last week for for mine mine land clearing clearing, but it's like, wait a second, what about the hundreds of millions we've just given them in the last six months? So blank check mentality. I want your position and your stance on this. Like, are we going to keep supporting this? And also Keystone XL. If Donald Trump gets back in in 2024, are you going to kick this thing back in, and we'll get this thing going with Trump? Thank you for taking my call. Well, Trump or DeSantis, right? I think uh, I have to say I'm 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 glad to see that Ron DeSantis looks like he's putting putting his name forward. I think it'd be interesting to see what he might do in that position. But I think you're making the point. If there's a change in leadership in the White House, is there an an ability for us to to restart Keystone XL? And I I think the the answer to that is. Uh, to me, the the fact that the hard work was done on identifying the route and getting the states on board, it really was a barrier of just getting that uh, that that approval, getting it across the border. I'd have to talk with uh, TC Energy to see if they have an appetite of going down that route. I'd also have to talk with them to see if now that we're talking about LNG and getting more natural gas to the world, if there's a potential to use that route, but perhaps repurpose that that uh, that right of way and 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 turn it into a natural gas line anyway, as building as the the foundation and backbone of building out the hydrogen economy. So I am actively interested in having all of those conversations if we have a willing partner in the White House. So we'll see how that ends up playing out. When it comes to Ukraine. This is the reason I am a provincial politician and not a federal politician. A provincial politician is focused on having to to address the the consequences of what happens when there's a calamity and war in the world. And we have 20,000 Ukrainians who have come here that we have an obligation to provide some support and uh, and transition and some normality to. So you may have to address your your first, your question on Ukraine to, to Justin Trudeau, but I can tell you um, the work that we are doing and Jackie Armstrong Hominek has been leading a Ukraine task force on it with representation from Calgary, Edmonton and Lethbridge to identify issues that we can solve to make life easier for those who are fleeing that uh, um, that that horrible environment. I met two young girls last week as a, for instance, one had been here for 10 months, another for seven months. They came not knowing a word of English and now they're involved in junior achievement, building out companies, 
that uh, can that can uh, supply goods to to Ukraine or with their Ukrainian uh, heritage in mind, and they're they're able to speak English almost fluently. And they said that they're going to build a life here, and that's what we want. This is what Canada has always been, and this is what Alberta has been. It's been a safe haven for people who are fleeing devastating circumstances, and that's where we'll, where Alberta will fo- focus its resources and is in helping that transition. All right, let's get back to uh, an oil patch related question. Uh, record profits in the oil patch, uh, Premier Smith, have basically funded most of the spending in our province. But earlier this week, the rural municipalities of Alberta released data showing that energy companies are still not paying what they owe in taxes, about $268 million. Isn't it about time the government stops playing nice, or is it a case of not wanting to bite the hand that feeds us? I can tell you that when this conversation was raised a few years ago, when everybody was devastated, when we were looking at a $20 billion deficit, when the amount of resource revenues dwindled down to, I think, as low as $3 billion, keeping in mind, I think it was $26 billion this year. And we've got, we had companies that were tipping over, uh, like Trident and Sequoia, and ending up with a massive liability going into the Orphan Well Association in, in a couple of years uh, right after the UCP, I think right after we got elected, Trident ended up going under. Everybody was really very, very concerned that if we pushed too far, we'd end up tipping a bunch of small and medium companies over. Now, fast forward, things change, right? And so now we've got higher oil prices, higher gas prices. We've got more drilling rigs in the fields and we've got higher profits. Many of our, our oil sands companies Companies also have the um, uh, conventional well sites, and uh, yeah, it's time to pay up. <laughs> so we agree, and and I've been working with the municipal affairs minister Rebecca Schultz. She's bringing forward a proposal where we would not allow for any new well acquisitions or allow for well license transfers if um, municipal property taxes aren't paid. Our texter, look- uh, our texter suggested to put the directors personally on the hook for both or appoint receivers. Well, you know what I would say. I don't. I don't. The thing is, when you appoint receivers, then then what you're doing is you're pushing a company into bankruptcy, and then your their inactive wells get pushed over to the Orphan Well Association. We want to do what we can to make sure that these um, that these well sites are in the hands of people who are viable companies who are able to pay the taxes. So the 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 process that we're looking at, because look at whenever you go and and sell your home, you you probably know this, Wayne. There's a deal about who's going to pay the property tax bill. Uh, is it, and and that has to be part of the discussion when you're transferring regular property. So it's got to be part of the discussion when we're transferring well sites as well. We want to make sure all of these bills end up getting paid. But we do need to understand that there are a number of companies that are not in operation. I think even the RMA press release said that there are 40% of the companies that have outstanding liability that are in active operation. So great, let's get all of them paying up. But what do we do about the 60% that are inactive? So we just need to be mindful that the, that there are a lot of companies that hold a lot of liability and there's going to be some some hard decisions that have to be made about how we, how we, how we uh, fund that. Um, that out- outstanding bill because it is not just the, the the municipal taxes that are the problem it's also the landowner leases but i think now that with the health of the industry that we're seeing i think it's now time for us to, to push along to a solution all right quick question before we head off to a break when will we get rid of daylight saving time once and for all with an honest referendum that offers the option of permanent mst unlike the rigged previous one that didn't now that is a text message in from ched Okay, I was frustrated by that vote too. It should have been a two-pronged vote. Do you want to have the same time year-round, yes or no? And then the secondary question, do you want it to be standard time year-round or daylight time year-round? Yeah, the question was, uh, I I found it 
I, yes. I, I read stuff all the time, and I found Completely. it uh, too complex. I think what's going to happen is the Americans are going to make this decision for us. I was just talking about this with my husband, and it sounds like the Americans are moving in the direction of ending the time change. And if they end the time change, we just have so much cross-border travel, so much integration of our flight schedules. I suspect that we would follow in pretty short order. So I'm watching what's happening in the United States. And if we if we have to have a, another referendum, then uh, then I'm prepared to do that. All right. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith. We'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on your province, your premier, your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. If you have a specific question you'd like the premier to answer, the numbers to phone or text are 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. I wanted to start off with this text from uh, uh, 630 Chad in Edmonton. Uh, Not really a question, Premier Smith. It's uh, more of a statement. I'm always staggered at how many mischaracterizations and misrepresentations of the Premier's positions on this very station are corrected every Saturday morning. Keep up the good work. All right. Uh, Enough of the praise. Uh, So let's get on to a question from uh, Edmonton. David does a taxable benefits question. Go ahead. You're on with Premier Smith. I have a comment, Danielle, but also a question. Um, it's great you're training more doctors, but they also need residency spots. If there aren't the residency spots, they don't become practicing doctors. Please look into, think about that, okay? My question is, many, dif- many benefits programs and pension contributions for employers, that sort of thing, are taxable. But because the employer is the common factor, it's held in, in law now in this country, it's held as being an asset of the company. So the company goes broke and the pensions and benefits get lost by the people that pay tax on that amount but now can't get anything from it. That's a, let, me, let me see if I can take that, that second question back to the finance minister and see if there's anything we can do. Part of the issue we have is we've got an integrated tax system with the federal government. And so to really address the issue you're raising, we may we may have to try to find a way to integrate with the, the federal and provincial government. So, sometimes there's certain things that are 100% under control and some are, are controlled in Alberta. And sometimes we, we have to, to coordinate it, particularly on, on tax files. So let me take that away. I, do, I don't have an answer for you, but I think you raise a, a very good point on it. That, I, I kind of look I just, at pensions as a as an entitlement, and as yeah. as an entitlement, Daniel, can I just it is make a own. Comment? Sure, go ahead. And Gainers, Nortel, Sears, the pensioners all lost their pension rights that were contributed by the company into the you know, as part of their agreement because they were held to be an asset of the company, which meant that. Goodbye, my pension. People that worked for the company for the, all of their lives are getting ten cents on the dollar. That they, they, those people pay taxes on those a lot of those benefits, and it's part of your compensation package, if you like, that you get these because it's easier for a million people to get a um, a benefits package, whether it's extra pension contributions or whatever, than it is for one person. And that's ideal, but by holding it in the name of the employer, it becomes an asset of the employer. That's my concern. 
I agree with you. Yeah, it's a it's a real problem. I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out what the solution is because I philosophically, if you have your own money being put into an account in your name and an employer is matching it, it's your money. So I, I agree with you about who it should be um, the asset of. I'm, I'm, I just don't know what the solution is on how we would change that in law. I don't know if it's a federal or a provincial level of of, uh, of legislation that we'd have to bring in. So let me take that away because you've given some good exam examples of, of high priority failures that have really left people in the lurch when it comes to the funding their retirement benefits. I think there was another question he had though, prior to getting into that, but I can't, uh, and do you remember what it was? I, I can't, I'm sorry. Okay, um, no problem. But I think basically what he was saying is that the employee uh, basically got it from both ends. Uh, if the company yep. folded because no, they were he's, paying he's taxes, you know, so. Yeah, he's completely right. And if there's a change in law that we can do that says that the pension assets belong in the name of the individual, then they wouldn't become available when it, when a company right. goes insolvent. I see where he's going. I just don't know if I, I, if I, I don't know if that's a federal change in policy we would need to integrate with or not. So I'd have to take that back to our finance minister. Okay. Uh, Andrea is calling in from, and uh, I'm not sure if I have this right, from Phoenix on an MRI wait list. Go ahead, uh, Andrea, you're on with uh, Premier Danielle Smith. Hi, thank you, Danielle Smith, for taking my call. I'm actually from Short Park. I'm just having a couple months vacation right now. <laughs> oh, you're listening listening online. Well, thank you. Uh, you betcha, you betcha. Our, our Premier, our Alberta. <laughs> so um, my question is uh, regarding the uh, clawback from the federal government on the funding for pri you know private scans that people are doing. I myself have had a couple of private MRI scans simply because I want early diagnostics and early treatment if necessary, because we know how long it takes to get in to see our specialists if you do need treatment or surgery. And even the wait list for the MRI is, well, at the time where I was doing it was, was, was a few months. I don't know what it is currently. Um, I don't know what the answer is. It's, it's more of a statement that it, it's a bit aggravating that they're gonna claw back funds. I'd rather see people be reimbursed for, for their expenses because they are taking the weight off the public system if they go into the private and pay for them on the, by themselves. You know, it's it's a great suggestion that um, if you want to get an MRI for peace of mind uh, and you pay out of pocket, but if they find something that we reimburse, I, I'd have to check to see if we do that policy, but that actually would be a good suggestion that might allow us to bridge the gap with the, with the federal government. And you're very right. I mean, doctors are great, but they don't necessarily... Um, catch all things as early as possible all the time. And I think that's why uh, sometimes people just want that extra set of certainty. And in a certain percentage of cases, people are going to find something that is uh, devastatingly wrong that allows them to get into the system. I'll tell you what I think the solution is. The solution is to not have um, wait lists that are, go beyond a medically reasonable period of time. And that is the number one, well, I shouldn't say number one. We've got three main priorities. We're making great progress on ambulance drop-off times. We're making great progress on uh, having a, a surgery, uh, on having a team of nurses see people through the process once they are in hospital so that we don't have hallway medicine. Um, and the, the last thing we've got to look at is the, the surgical wait time. So we identified the number of patients that were waiting longer than medically recommended. It was about 39,000 when we started this process. We're now down to 35,000 and I'd like that to be zero that that is the goal of our of our our official administrator Dr. John Cowell is that we'll never end 
wait lines completely, but let's make sure no one is waiting longer than medically recommended so that you have that certainty that you're going to get in for treatment when right. you get diagnosed. Now, I want to wrap up the show. Uh, we've got oh, we've got a, a waiting list of calls. We have so many text messages that I didn't get to, but I wanted to tie these two together. They're both transportation-oriented. Daryl has been hanging on for a long time with a question about Diamond Valley. That's the uh, amalgamation of Turner Valley and Black Diamond. Go ahead, Daryl. Yes, good morning, Daniel. I have a question. The city of Calgary is getting rid of all their diesel buses, and they're going to replace them with electric buses. What is this going to do to the power grid when they go to charge all these electric buses? And what's it going to do to my power bill because of the supply and demand? I think you're raising a good question because that is that is my concern is what is the capacity of our existing grid if people if everything was to be electrified because that's the vision that's being put out there everything's going to be electric and it's going to it's so you're all over the transportation vehicles as well as even um, home heating for for heat pumps and that sort of thing and my information that I've been given is that it would cost an a uh, hundred and twenty billion dollars to upgrade the power grid to be able to support that if you look at your at your electricity bill, you'll see that there's already huge line items for distribution and transmission. And so I don't know if there is capacity to be able to essentially do a five to 10 fold increase in the amount of transmission that we end distribution we build out to make that happen. As I understand it, you have to put transformers on uh, in place anytime there's more than a, I think a couple of, of cars plugged in on a city block and transformers cost $40,000 to upgrade. Plus there's also, as I understand it, about an 80 week backlog of getting them in. So I know that the aspiration is something that people are going for, but I have to look at the practicalities of these, which is why I'm very keen on seeing if we can find a a solution that involves hydrogen fuel cells, hydrogen fueling stations. Maybe biodiesel is going to be our solution. We've got the Imperial Oil uh, Refinery that is talking about a $720 million biodiesel plant. We have new projects coming on stream every day. So I, I think that there'll be a, a room for some electric vehicles, but I think those other options, biodiesel and hydrogen, actually make more sense in our economy. All right, Premier Smith, we have run out of time. I wasn't able to get in my last text question, but uh, you know what? We'll be back here next week at the same time. We sure will. Looking forward to it, Wayne. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Wayne Nelson. You have been listening to Your Province, Your Premier.